Thank you for downloading this episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. This week's Parsha Nassau is sponsored by Allison and Edward Bermant. In honor of their grandchildren, Eliana, Dovi, and Jonah Bornstein. If you're interested in downloading more digital content, please visit elmod.pardes.org. Hi, this is Nahama Goldman Barish for an Elmod podcast on Parshat Naso. In this week's podcast, I want to take a look at the biblical text about the Sota, the woman who's suspected of adultery. What we have here, which is singular in the Torah, and in fact in the entire Tanakh, is what is called a trial by ordeal, something that was used throughout the ancient Near East to help decide cases in which witnesses were conflicted or lacking. For instance, the water ordeal, which was used among other things to test women accused of adultery, involved throwing the possibly guilty party into a river or a body of water. If he or she sank, it confirmed guilt, but if they floated, it proved innocence. Other ordeals involved suffering an injury with boiling water or scalding metal. If the injuries healed, the verdict was perceived as handed down by God, and the victim was innocent. Here in Nassau, as I said, we have the only trial by ordeal that takes place in the Torah, and it is a fairly harmless ordeal. If the woman is guilty, the potion of water, dirt, and ink will miraculously have a transformative effect on her body. Her body will swell grotesquely and she will be rendered infertile. If the woman is innocent, she has no reason to fear the water. She will remain fertile and bear seed. Many questions are asked about this text. Is it meant to protect the man or the woman? The ambiguity of the passage opens it to multiple interpretations. So let's take a look at some of the psukim that are in this parsha. We're in chapter 5 of Midbar, the book of Numbers, verse 11. Now, speak to the Israelite people, God says to Moses, and say to them, If any man has a wife who has gone astray, that's where we get the term sota, right? This idea that the sota is a woman who has gone astray. And she's broken faith with him. And this is a linguistic tie-in to what was uh, written in verses 5 to 7, where God tells Moshe to speak to the children of Israel about man or woman who commits a wrong towards another human being, a fellow man, lim ol mal badonai, right? And that breaks faith with God. So in one chapter, we have two sections, two uh, texts that connect through this idea that breaking faith or betrayal of one person to another is also breaking faith with God. And so here too, we start off by saying that the woman has broken faith with her husband or is perceived to have broken faith with her husband. And that is a crime against God as well as towards her husband. Vishachav Ishota, we're back in the Pasuk, uh, Pasuk Yudbet 12. Shechvat Zerav, Ne'ala Me'nei Isha, V'nistara V'hi Nitma'a, V'ed Enba, V'hi Lo Nitpasa. So I'm going to translate the Pasuk, and I really want to talk about the extraordinary nuance that is in the language, embedded in the language of this Pasuk. A man had carnal relations with her. So we have, first of all, the entire Parsha starts with the man, the husband, 
And yet the focus is very much going to shift quickly to the woman, to the wife. So a man whose wife has gone astray. And here too, the man is the, the active partner. He's the one who has had relations. Shichvad zera. In other words, the Pasuk emphasizes he has laid uh, his seed uh, in her or with her. And the beauty of the woman's body is that it is very private and that it is a vessel for the seed. And yet in this case, it also allows her to betray her husband in such a way that the evidence disappears within her body. And she keeps it secret. And here too, we have a play on words. She's Now, since we finished the book of Leviticus, we know that zera, that seed, is a source of tum'ah in general. It's a source of tum'ah to the man who uh, emits the seed, and it's also a source of tum'ah to the woman who absorbs the seed. Vihinitma'ah means, yes, of course, she's tme'ah from the seed. Now, whose seed is making her tameh? Her husband's seed makes her tameh. Her lover's seed makes her tameh. But here, the double intention is that she's nitma'ah meaning there's moral defilement as well as the spiritual tum'ah that is associated with all zera, ve'ed emba, and there are no witnesses, v'hilonit pasa, and here too the pasuk has a double play, a double entendre, that she has not been caught, but also hilonit pasa connects me to the passage in Devarim that describes sexual assault, a woman who is violently forced to have relations. And here, Vihilonit Pasa makes it very clear that this is not against her will. So she hasn't been caught and it's not against her will, which means that there's a consensuality. So in this one pasuk, on one hand, it is the man, Vishachav Ish Ota. On the other hand, she becomes very much an active participant Nistara, she keeps it a secret. He nitma'a, she has been in contact, direct contact with the man's seed, which is a source of tuma. And in addition, she has been morally defiled. Ve'ed einba, no witnesses, and she has not been caught and she has not been coerced. Va'avar lav ruach kina, the next pasuk is a fit of jealousy comes over him. V'kinei etishto, he is wrought, he is jealous of his wife. V'hin nitma'a, and the pasuk reminds us that she in fact has been defiled by seed, not of her husband. Oh, and now the pasuk, and this is probably the most morally complex piece. Oh, avar lav ruach kina, v'kinei etishto, lo nitma'a. And or he has a fit of jealousy, he is uh, uh, consumed with this jealous spirit, and she has not nitma'ah, she has not defiled herself morally in any way, she has not been defiled or nitma'ah from another man's seed, and yet this parsha is going to uh, unfold with both possibilities being held one next to the other, at least in the Torah. The idea of the man who has good reason to suspect his wife, but there are no witnesses and she has not been caught. And the man who has no cause to suspect his wife, but nonetheless is consumed with jealousy. At this point, the husband takes his wife to the priest and the priest takes water in an earthen vessel. He takes some of the earth that's on the floor of the tabernacle and he puts that into the water. And ultimately he's going to write down a curse in which 
the priest adjures the woman saying as follows if no man has lain with you if you have not gone astray in defilement while married to your husband be immune to harm from this water of bitterness that induces the spell but if you have gone astray while married to your husband and have defiled yourself if a man other than your husband has had carnal relations with you and here the priest shall administer says the pasuk the curse of adjuration to the woman May the Lord make you a curse and an imprecation among your people as the Lord causes your thigh to sag and your belly to distend. May this water that induces the spell enter your body, causing the belly to distend and the thigh to sag, and the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. And this passage is actually repeated twice in a way in this chapter, um, and it forms a very interesting literary structure uh, that many scholars have analyzed. Uh, but what I want to focus on now is uh, the end of the chapter, verses 28 to 31. So what we've had is a description of what will happen uh, in the ordeal, the trial by ordeal. If the woman is guilty, the belly will distend and the thigh will sag. She will not die. There will be some consequence to the parts of her body that essentially have been corrupted by this act of betrayal, by committing adultery. And... Um, this will be somewhat private. In other words, it's not that there will be an external explosion and everyone will be able to see what happened to the woman, but something will happen to her fertility, to her sexuality. The water will have an effect on her. And if she has not nitma'a, uh, meaning if she's tohora, then she'll be unharmed. Vinizra zera, meaning in contrast to the woman whose thigh will sag and belly will distend, she will be unharmed and able to retain seed, meaning her reward for going through this ordeal in innocence will be uh, fertility. And then the pasuk, there are two more psukim, uh, this is the ritual, this is the ordeal in cases of jealousy when a woman goes astray while married to her husband and defiles herself, or when a fit of jealousy comes over the man, when there's a ruach kina and she's not guilty, same ordeal will be administered to the two different cases, guilty and innocent. And then the Torah really ends with, with the man, regardless, whether he was justified or not, he will be cleansed of all wrongdoing. And if she's guilty, says the Torah, she's going to uh, carry, her, uh, carry her sin with her or suffer for her guilt for the rest of her life. And that's the end of the parak. It then is going to go on to the story of the Nazir. It's also an interesting juxtaposition. Um, but we're not going to develop that juxtaposition right now. I want to now highlight the contrast between the biblical text and the Mishnah. It is interesting that the Mishnah takes great pains to interpret the biblical text in such a way that the ordeal turns into a ritual heavily overseen by the court with clear protocols involving witnesses and specific guidelines. This becomes apparent in the first two Mishnayot in the tractate. One who is jealous of his wife gives her a warning 
in front of two witnesses that he is jealous of a particular man. The word kina hamikanel ishto is a play on kina jealousy, and it is a necessary legal step in the proceedings known as kinoi. A man cannot accuse his wife without this step, and everyone is in agreement that there have to be two men who witness, two kosher witnesses, who witness a man accusing his wife or suspecting his wife of misdeeds with a particular man. The Mishnah even gives the script that must be used. It's a Mishnah bet. Ketzad Mekanela, how does he do the kinoi? Amar Labifnei again, in front of two, if he says to his wife, I don't let you talk to this man, and she speaks to him, she's still permitted to her house. She's not considered suspected of adultery in any way. However, if she goes with that man into Beit HaSater and stays there as long as it takes to get the deed done, and the Gemara, of course, has humorous uh, descriptions of how long it would take to commit adultery, uh, then, of course, she would be prohibited to her house and the process would be started. So in this second stage, we have Kina based on the word Kana, which is the root for jealousy. And then there has to be Stira, which is seclusion with the man she has been warned about. In the biblical text, we were told vanistara, she kept it secret, right? She she is suspected of being a sota because she kept her affair discreet and secret. Here, the same root is used to describe her concealment with the man in question in front of witnesses. It is hardly secret given that there are witnesses. However, since there are no witnesses to the actual act that constitutes adultery, she and he cannot be brought to trial and prosecuted for this capital crime. Because of the suspicion cast by the kinoi and then the stira, it becomes a matter of public concern, and the process begins to bring her before the court, the priest, and the public in Jerusalem. While the tractate is hyper-focused on what is done to the sota, later on in the tractate we read the reasonable requirement that the lover must also drink from the water. Unlike the biblical text in which the lover is possibly a figment of the husband's imagination, and even if he exists, he has no shape or form, her body has indeed concealed all the evidence. Thanks to the Kinoyan Stira requirements, her lover has a name, a face, and a body, and he too has to be held accountable. While not prosecutable as adultery, in which if the man and woman are guilty of a a capital crime, they can't be prosecuted because there aren't two witnesses to the act, we cannot ignore his culpability. What is fundamentally different about the Mishnah is that the entire discussion presumes guilt once the process is set into place by Kinoyan Stira. The aim of the ritual is to expose the wife's secret. The whole structure reinforces her guilt. She is not allowed to be alone with her husband from the moment he makes his claim. If he is accusing her, there is consequence for him as well, and that means complete abstinence, as befits an adulterous wife who becomes prohibited to her husband by law. If he does seclude himself with her on the journey to Jerusalem, he can no longer bring her as a sota. In other words, if he continues to be in a sexual relationship with her, he has perjured himself. In addition, if he has not been faithful himself and has had affairs with married women, the ordeal will not work. 
In order to avoid her seclusion with her husband, the court sends priests to chaperone the couple on the journey. These chaperones badger the woman to confess, suggesting all sorts of reasons she might have been led astray. If she does confess, the process is halted and she is divorced without her ketubah, without her marriage contract. While she can refuse to drink up to a certain point without confessing, uh, this refusal is taken as a tacit sign of guilt and she is divorced without her ketubah. Again, that is a serious penalty given that the marriage contract, the ketubah, is meant to give her the financial cushion until she re- rebuilds her life after divorce or her husband's death. At a later stage, when the potion has been prepared, she can only refuse to drink if she agrees to confess. If she remains silent, she is subjected to a bizarre and somewhat violent treatment at the hands of the priest. Her clothing are torn, exposing her body, and her hair is greatly disheveled. She is put into black clothing and her adornments are removed. She is made an object of revulsion to the hordes of onlookers who have come to watch. The court encouraged women in particular to come and look up on her as it is said, quote, that all women may be taught not to do after your lewdness, end of quote. This is a verse from Yechezkel, Ezekiel. If she is guilty, she will die by the effects of the potion, as befits one guilty of a capital crime who cannot be executed by the court. The Mishnah does add that if she has merit, it will suspend the Sota's death, but eventually she will deteriorate and die that same death at a later time. The effect of waters of the Sota will be a kind of poison that will linger until she dies. This too differs from the text of the Torah, in which she suffers an internal consequence, presumably known only to her and her husband. While Professor Judith Houtman, in her famous book about rabbinic text called Rereading the Rabbis, argues that the rereading of the biblical text made it virtually impossible to accuse a woman of being a Sota, the ritual itself becomes more barbaric and less vicious than what is described in the Torah. Leading Professor Yishai Rosensvi, who wrote his doctoral thesis on the Sota, to suggest that the ordeal is a fantasy of total and unbridled control over the female body. I would suggest that Hauptmann is correct. The rabbis themselves state that at most there was one sota in the history of the Sanhedrin, and she, if memory serves correctly, was a freed Canaanite slave, thus defending the overall virtue of the daughters of Israel. And Rosensvi is also correct in noting that because of Kinoy and Stira, the warning and the seclusion in front of witnesses, there is almost no possibility of innocence. Adultery shatters the entire moral and religious world order by betraying what is most sacred in marriage, the complete acquisition of a woman's sexuality so that it belongs solely to her husband. In the Mishnah, the virtual sota serves as a reminder of the perils of shattering these sacred vows, and while the lover also suffers for his sins, he does not take center stage in the way that our Hester Prynne sota does. I want to conclude, though, with a fascinating Midrashic read that infuses a feminine voice into the sota ritual. Although it is told in the male rabbinic voice, it admirably recognizes that a woman might find good reason to become an accused sota. In Tractate Brachot 31b, the Talmud examines the character of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, brought in the first two chapters of the book of Samuel 1. She is a barren woman who goes to pray in the tabernacle and is promised a child, who turns out to be the prophet Samuel. 
The Midrashic sequence gives her a strong voice because of her strong voice in the biblical text. She teaches the rabbis of the Talmud how to pray. She challenges God's providence in the world. She is educated in both biblical and rabbinic text and very articulate. She wants a child. And finally, she discovers the Sota passage. What is wonderful is they give Hannah the ability to interpret the passage with her own eyes and through the needs of her very female body. The two men in this story, her husband Elkanah and the high priest Eli, totally misunderstand her. God is her only hope. Using the language used in Samuel 1, Hannah in the Midrash threatens God. If she will not be granted a child through normal channels, she will force God's hand. She will become a Sota. What an extraordinary thought to use her body for both the worst and the best of what women's sexuality represents. The worst, of course, is anxiety over sexual betrayal, and the best is admiration for women's ability to give birth. She will play according to the rabbinic playbook. She will seclude herself with a specific man, forcing her husband to accuse her as Sota and unleash this powerful mechanism that will work in her favor. She will force the hand of the men in control in order to force the hand of God, Otherwise, says the Midrash, says Hannah in the Midrash, the Torah will become plaster, it will become meaningless. In this way, because she will be innocent, she will be promised a child, or God's Torah will indeed be rendered meaningless. The Talmud recognizes that even the most righteous, modest of women in their desperation to concede will understand the power of the Sota ritual, not as a humiliating or undignified ritual that the men have designed to expose the women. For that, they are willing to suffer, as do many women who go through painful fertility treatment, but as a guarantee of birth of children. And this would be a small price to pay, says Hannah, to have a child. In this final reading, I have tried to suggest that in the Midrashic voice of Hannah, we hear the possibility for women to chart their own course, course, avoiding the Sota completely or utilizing it for their own gain. This too is the interpretation of Torah, but through a different lens and with different consequence. Shabbat Shalom. Will not be a deterrent in their eyes, but a guarantee of children. And this would be a small price to pay, says Hannah, to have a child. I want to conclude with a new direction and the Ben-Azai and Rabbi Eliezer argument. In this reading, Ben-Azai is affirming that education is a game changer. Women will have agency to chart their own course, avoiding the Sota or utilizing it for their own gain. This too is the interpretation of Torah, but through a different lens and with different consequence. And Rabbi Eliezer is afraid of giving over that power. In, uh, in the words of Rabbi Akiva, how do we know that some women won't come to fall? Some women won't trust themselves a little too much to be secluded with Yaakov the milkman and ultimately will come to uh, commit adultery. That, to Rabbi Akiva, is too high a price to pay. To Hana, it's not high enough. She is willing to take that chance in order to bear a child. Rabbi Eliezer was afraid for Tiflut, but over the last century, of course, we have come to understand the exact opposite. The love and passion that women and men have for learning can only result in more Torah L'Shem Shamayim, more and more voices surrounding the tree of life and binding to its branches and deepening its roots. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. You can also subscribe to any of our other podcast channels by visiting us online at elmod.pardes.org. Thanks for listening.